This episode of New Politics was released on the 21st of May, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the final week of the election campaign, the big issues that have been ignored over the past six weeks, final opinion polls, and the big question, who will win the 2022 federal election? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, captain of the Under-7 soccer team. And a big thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. Thanks for signing up. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The election campaign is almost over and it's now getting down to counting all those votes that have been lodged in the pre-polling period and sent through the post and all of those votes that will be cast on election day. All sides of politics have put out their policy ideas over the past six weeks and let the public know what they plan to do in the future if they can form government after the election. But in politics, there can only be one winner and the others will have to go away and prepare themselves for another election in three years time. Now, we've talked about this in the past. Winning the campaign doesn't necessarily result in winning the election, and elections are based on how the government has performed over the past three years and which party offers a better plan for the future. All of the political parties have had their ups and downs, but which party has had the better campaign? Neither campaign has been astounding, but the Liberal campaign hasn't been great. And that's partly because a government should be able to say, we've done this and we've done this and we've done this, focusing on the stuff that people have liked and maybe coding over the stuff that people haven't liked, unless it was necessary and shown in the medium term, at least, to have been a good piece of policy. Morrison hasn't really been able to do that because there hasn't been a lot of achievement. There hasn't been a lot of good come out of it. And Labor's been a bit disappointing in that they haven't really capitalised on a lot of this stuff, as far as I can see. I'll be fair to the Labor campaign too, and, and the Liberal campaign. They're not really talking to us, Eddie. We've made our minds up a long time ago, and we mightn't have made up the finer details in do we vote Labor or do we vote minor party then Labor or what have you. But the Liberal Party knows that I'm not going to vote for them this time. The Labor Party knows that my vote will go their way in preferences at least. So they're not really talking to me. But as far as I can tell, the Labor campaign hasn't been quite as good as it could have been. Now, there's been some bad luck. I'm ignoring the gaffe. The gaffe was nothing. And then they spent the next six weeks trying to catch him up again, which they didn't really do because nobody cared about the first gaffe. Albanese having COVID didn't help. But having said that, there are plenty of great performers who can step in for him, and he did work from home. 
in terms of how did the campaign go, pretty good. Now, the Liberals were trying to rely on snappy phrasings. Life won't be easy under Albanese in the hope that people will forget the last three years. The Liberal campaigns, I guess they're not to my taste in that they don't talk about policy They and they don't have good campaigners. I know Scott Morrison is supposed to be this marvellous campaigner, but if you've ever seen a Gough Whitlam, say, walk into a room or a Bob Hawke walk into a room or a, a John Howard after he was told, you look like a man who's just walked out of the other room and worked on it, and I sort of turn to them. They attract attention. Morrison, so far as I can tell, isn't capable of this. Plus, he is fairly loathed within the community. Twitter often trends, and Twitter is an echo chamber, but it's funny that you see hashtag dickhead and you know exactly who it is he's, it's referring to. I don't think either campaign has been astounding, but on balance... I think the Labour parties has been less worse. Well, the character of each leader has been called into question. Scott Morrison has a large dissatisfaction rating from the public and Labour has been attacking those key issues from the lack of leadership on the bushfires, the vaccine or the vaccination rollout and the recent floods in New South Wales. And they've actually had a lot of material to work with from over the past three years of this parliament and from this government. And I agree with you. I'm surprised that Labor didn't actually push this even further. And and all of these issues were something that Tracy Grimshaw from Nine Media honed in on during the week as well. Prime Minister, you said at uh, your launch on Sunday, I saved the country. You don't hold a hose. You weren't in your tinny plucking people off rooftops. You weren't doing 16-hour days in PPE on COVID wards. You didn't get enough vaccines soon enough. You didn't get enough rats so that we could finally have a holiday interstate for Christmas and China is set up base in the Solomons. Do you think maybe you slightly over-egged the part about I saved the country? Well, that's, that's quite a long list you've been able to pull together. But let me say this. The Liberal Party has been pushing the message that Anthony Albanese isn't experienced enough, even though he's been in Parliament since 1996. They've also been pushing that idea that he hasn't had an economic portfolio before. He's a loose unit, although that can be positive or negative, depending on which demographic you're looking at. And and also this strange idea that you can't actually be Prime Minister if you've never been Prime Minister before. Well, guess what? There was actually a time when Scott Morrison wasn't actually Prime Minister, so... I'm not sure how he got the job in the first place, if that's actually the case. And in the final few weeks of the campaign, especially in the past week, the focus has been on the cost of living pressures, inflation and stagnant wages. China has also been a feature over the past week with a scare campaign about a secret Chinese spy ship 400 kilometres off the coast of Perth. And it was so secret that the ship was actually docked at Garden Island being repaired and that's just off the coast of Perth. So it's clear that the government was doing its usual dog whistling and racism on China and then trying to weave the idea that Albanese wouldn't be able to stand up to China. And Peter Dutton stood up to China so much that he sold off the port of Darwin to the Chinese business interests and gave up the Solomon Islands to the Chinese Communist Party. So it's the government which actually hasn't stood up to China, not Anthony Albanese. The whole Chinese dog whistling thing is just appalling. They seem to forget that it actually nearly cost John Howard his career in the 1980s, back when this stuff was probably a little bit more acceptable, which I'm not proud in saying, but I think is true. doesn't matter 
what you say, it's what people hear that, that matters, particularly in politics. And I think Peter Dutton may rue this because either the coalition get returned with worsening relations with China or the Labor Party gets returned and Chinese-Australian relations start to improve a bit, which have flow-on effects for things like the economy and international trade and even defence. I think some of it was trying to cover up the fact that they'd bungled the Solomon Islands, that China had managed to, through purely diplomatic means, get in through the back door and take what should have been Australian influence in the Solomons and keep it for themselves. And I don't think Australia will ever get that back. Under the Liberal government, we don't have the diplomatic skills to be able to win the Solomon Islands back. So this dog whistling in China, I think, probably highlights to the interested the weakness of the government. And the Liberal Party did actually have its official campaign launch on Sunday, holding off until the last realistic minute to hold this launch. And that's because they can use public money until they formally launch their campaign and then they have to start using Liberal Party money. But they did also announce a policy of first home buyers being able to use 40% of their superannuation fund to purchase a home. But as with most government support that goes into subsidising pretty much anything, whether it be healthcare, rebate, childcare subsidy, private schools, all it does is push up the cost of those services for the consumer. And it's likely that this will be the end result here as well. This is the same with almost every affordable housing measure that's been introduced over the past 30 years. These are politically saleable policies that sound like a very good idea to the electorate, but they actually do nothing for housing affordability. The most basic issue would be to increase the supply of land and housing and improve housing density in the capital cities and also fix up capital gains tax issues for property investors, not just get an instant hit of cash into borrowers' hands, which then pushes up the price of housing. Labor did have a policy in the 2019 election which addressed some of those issues and we know how well that all worked out for them at that election. But housing affordability is just going to be one of those issues that continuously has the wrong solutions applied to it. Exactly. It's a vexed issue, let's be fair. There are people who have owned a house for a long time, have a lot of equity in their house and they don't want to lose that value. There are people who have overborrowed or gone close to overborrowing and you don't want a surge of foreclosures and homelessness. The banks don't want foreclosures. The banks will be able to work with people for probably five or six or seven years knowing that they'll be getting that money back at the end. But if the economy doesn't recover, they may be forced into foreclosures. People may decide to sell before they get foreclosed upon and that floods the market thereby affecting the value of houses owned by other people, which means you run the risk of a lot of people owing more than the asset is worth. Having said that, there are people who are desperate to buy and who just can't afford it. The solution of taking your money out of super, I think, is more of a way to wreck superannuation than it is to solve a problem. This government has form in trying to destroy union superannuations, the industry supers, and this might be a way of doing it, especially since the private superannuation funds aren't doing so well. The industry super funds tend to do better than the private ones. This is the whole Tim Wilson thing. This is, I wish I could move down to Goldstein and vote him out just on that general principle. Channel 9 were pushing it. They had in an economist who said that there was a very bad idea 
to do this. Good on Channel 9 for getting in someone who presented a, a counter-argument in a logical and clear way. Then they brought in a, a youngish fellow, probably around 30, who said, to be honest, I could do with the cash now rather than have it sit in an account for 30 years till I can get it out. And this all sounds very nice, but when he's 65 and he wants to retire, will he be prepared to sell the house to fund that retirement? That's a big question. And I note too, Fairfax and the Financial Review have had stories on superannuation gives a better return than property. So it's a risky policy. It's not a terribly good policy. And it's not going to solve anything except drain industry super and private super. I guess it was also a policy announcement to boost their campaign launch as well. And if it's such a good idea, well, why didn't they introduce it three years ago or six years ago or nine years ago? But one week before Election Day, we all know the reason why it was sort of introduced. But I guess the overall idea is that I think we'll probably have to explore or look at the way that campaigns are managed in the future. And in many different ways, the campaign might not be so relevant. We discussed this in previous episodes. The media is bored. They look for the gotcha moments. They said that the cash rate mistake Anthony Albanese made on the first day of the campaign meant that the election was already lost. Anthony Albanese was actually away from the campaign for a week after he contracted a COVID infection, but that didn't seem to make too much of a difference. I'd argue that Scott Morrison bowling over an eight-year-old kid on the football field, which is exactly what he did in Tasmania while he was campaigning in the seat of Braddon, I'd say probably that's the bigger campaign killer rather than Albanese forgetting a number back on day one of the campaign. But the media didn't seem to make a big deal of this issue of Scott Morrison bowling over an eight-year-old kid. It wasn't a good look, was it? I know that a couple of commentators, Ronnie Salt springs to mind, thinks that it was a way of diffusing Albanese's appearance at the press club, which was, by all accounts, outstanding, which may, of course, be evidence that I was a bit harsh on their campaign, and I'll accept that. But I don't know, a man who must weigh 100 or 110 kilos, jumping onto a young boy of seven in a tackle that is illegal in the game they were playing can't have helped. It mightn't swing a vote at all because I think his supporters will say, oh, you know, these things happen. Why was that kid standing there? That's what they'd say. Actually, yeah, it was the kid's fault. (laughs) And those who were never going to vote for him have just had their feelings confirmed again that he's not a terribly smart human being. So it's a bizarre thing, except that it probably got an extra five minutes in the news where the media wasn't talking about Anthony Albanese's and Labor's policies. Again, it's a very risky move. Of course, I will be fair here. Scott Morrison has always played very high stakes, and these have paid off for him so far. But he may have pushed it too far this time. We'll see. And in the campaign, we've also had the Teal independence introduced into the political lexicon, although the media does like to use the term the so-called Teal independence, which feeds right into that government narrative that they're all Labor stooges or not really independent at all. So I think that's been a big factor within this campaign, and we'll find out on election night how big that actual factor is. And of course, a political campaign is based on so many things that happen over a five or six week period. 
essentially it's the future of the country that's on the line. But I think that the biggest loser in this campaign has been the mainstream media. They've been inserting themselves into the campaign, making themselves seem like they're more important than the political players that they're meant to be reporting on. But if Labor does win the election, and there's a lot of things that still have to fall into place for this to happen on Saturday... But it will further diminish the importance that the media does have within political affairs. They've constantly been pushing all of the talking points of the government and attacking Labor wherever possible. And that's pretty much all of the mainstream media, including the ABC. The media itself has had an abysmal campaign, and I think that they've been really exposed over the past six weeks. If anybody has lost this campaign, it's the media. Again, it's the engaged who notice this more so than the disengaged. But The media with its constant barrage of gotcha questions that aren't very good, with its missing of the point, there are many honourable exceptions. Laura Tingle springs to mind. Tracy Grimshaw the other night springs to mind. But the standing up with a phone to read a one-sentence question, to ask someone for an arcane detail, was just a stupid way of going about things. I think whoever gets in, and it won't happen under the Liberal Party, of course, needs to totally reform the media landscape. Caps on the percentage of business you can own. Truth in journalism legislation, like in Canada. I haven't heard any defence against it. They tend to just ignore it. So it'd be interesting to open that debate with some of the senior editors or even the publishers as to why truth in journalism uh, laws shouldn't be a part of it. And of course, they'd probably say, oh, well, because sometimes we print things thinking them to be absolutely honest, and it turns out later that they're wrong. You wouldn't want to get caught on that. But I think laws allow for that, that honest mistakes, genuinely honest mistakes that are properly corrected are okay. Of course, the business model is on sensationalism and and not really telling the truth. There's a lot of journalists in the press corps who really need to rethink their career. Stay as journalists, sure, but maybe not political journalists. You need people who are subtle thinkers. You need people who can see through the spin. You need people who are prepared to be honest about it and to be as... I don't want to say I'm biased because that's too big an ask, but to be fair about it. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Major campaign themes have been based around the cost of living, employment, interest rates and housing, but there's also many other issues that haven't featured prominently during the campaign at all. Labor has focused a small amount on Indigenous affairs. Anthony Albanese offered strong support for the Indigenous voice to Parliament and has promised a referendum in the next Parliament. Morrison hasn't mentioned anything at all, just offering a dismissive attitude to the issue about appearing on NITV to discuss Indigenous issues. 
Prime Minister. Prime Minister, why won't anyone from the coalition appear on the National Indigenous Broadcasters election program? We're in Lingiari. It has the highest population of Indigenous Australians. Are these issues not important to you? We're investing $30 million in supporting connectivity, particularly for Indigenous communities right across the country. That's how you close the gap for connectivity for Indigenous Australians. Will someone from your government appear on the National Indigenous Broadcasters election program? And there's also many other areas that have been overlooked or ignored. Arts policy from Labor that was announced on Monday, but nothing from the Liberal Party. After the big year in 2021, with the March for Justice campaign, the Set the Standard report from the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, late last year, women's issues haven't featured very much at all. And on some level, it's pretty obvious why that's happened, given that the senior leadership positions in the Labor Party, Liberal Party and the National Party, they're all male. These are important issues, but there just hasn't been enough emphasis placed upon these issues during the campaign. Arts. One of the more significant funding of arts was actually done by the Gorton government from, what, 68 through to 71, which launched that first golden age of Australian filmmaking, giving us classics like Picnic at Hanging Rock, Walkabout, Getting a Wisdom, Mad Max is just at the end of this, I think. And it launched Australian cinema into the world. At the same time, you have the music of Australia and going international. Uh, the thing that springs to mind is the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack, which becomes the official soundtrack around the world, the Australian cast, with uh, people like John English and Marsha Hines and Stevie Wright, etc. Some of this has poured into the Whitlam years, and the Whitlam years pushed the arts up. There was a time not that long ago where if you had a more conservative person and you realised that the political argument was going to degrade, you could switch to literature or poetry or music and have a really wonderful conversation. And you still mightn't have agreed, but one of the things with being a non-Labor person was that you had that type of education, that type of, of knowledge that type of love, that type of passion. If you read Hasluck's diary, if you read Menzies' stuff, they're forever talking about the literature they love. They could recite Australian poetry all the way from Adam Lindsay Gordon through Patterson and Lawson right up to the modern stuff, for them at least, Kenneth Slesser and, and those guys. I doubt Scott Morrison could tell you the name of any Australian poem, let alone who wrote Waltzing Matilda, for example. He might be able to guess it let alone Barnaby Joyce, let alone Dan Tehan, and on and on I'd go. Arts give us culture. Arts give us the reason to live. The money gives us the means to live, but without some kind of humanities. And whether you're a goth punk into steampunk or whether you're a fan of opera, it doesn't matter. That's what arts do. We've been run by Philistines since at least 1996. Whether those Liberal Party or National Party figures actually know who these historical literary figures are or musical figures are who, or whoever wrote which song or whatever, it's not in their political interest to announce that to the public or not. So generally they're quite dismissive of the arts. Labor did launch its arts policy during the week. The Coalition has got a document somewhere on its website announcing what it will do for the arts, which is not very much at all. But the arts sector, along with the university sector, these were the hardest hit areas 
during the pandemic, but they didn't receive any JobKeeper support. And the support that they did receive was through a loan support system, which they had to pay back. And it's just a pity the government didn't think of that idea when it gave close to $40 billion of JobKeeper to companies that didn't need it, such as Harvey Norman. But I think this issue here is a it's a continuation of that philosophy of the modern Liberal Party. The Liberal Party of old, as you mentioned before, they supported the arts and creative industries. But the modern Liberal Party despises the arts. They use everything they can to attack them. They've got more in common with One Nation here, with all of these attacks on the supposed elites and overprivileged people, even though many people who work in the arts are some of the lowest paid people in the community. It defeats me. And when you think of it, now there's going to be some people who start yelling at the device here, but let me finish. (laughs) There's a sense in which artists should be, some artists at least, should be more inclined to the Liberal Party. You know, you can point to Tina Arena or what have you. But think about the broader terms, individualism, entrepreneurship, which artists have to be, working by yourself, lower taxes. These are all things that artists might agree with. You'd think that they would try and foster that in artists. Instead, they just cut everyone loose. And the slamming of humanities... And I suspect that was more because people who do humanities learn how to think in political terms. Not saying that other subjects don't learn how to think, but you tend to come out of an arts degree being a bit more critical of ideas that you've been studying, if that makes sense. So I guess it makes sense that they cut arts degrees because they genuinely believe that they're full of lefties brainwashing uh, young people. That was never my experience in the university, both as a student and as a lecturer. But to cut the arts, to tap into that ignorant, people in the arts are just bludgers. They don't have a real job. They don't do anything. I've been told that. Why don't you get a real job? That type of stuff. People hate you for what you do if you you work in the arts. Some do. They really do. They've tapped into that. And of course, it shows their own lack of depth, their own lack of substance, and their own lack of significance. And just getting back to Indigenous issues, because Indigenous issues rarely rate at all in federal politics, so they're hardly going to be a feature of very much during an election campaign itself. But according to research, Indigenous people vote for Labor at anywhere between 80 to 90%. And the Liberal Party tends to be a party that doesn't do anything for the groups of people in the community that don't vote for them. So that's why the Liberal Party hasn't said anything at all on Indigenous issues. And it shouldn't be just at the whim of a party who was in government at the time. That's why I think that a voice to Parliament is such an important process. And and if Labor does happen to win, we'll, we'll have to keep them to that promise of offering a referendum on the voice to Parliament. Women's issues and women's safety. I would have thought that after the big year in politics on these issues throughout 2021, this would have been a key feature of this election campaign and the fact that 51% of the population are women. The Liberal and National parties, obviously they don't want to talk about it with all of the ministers and staffers that have got allegations of sexual misconduct and serious offences levelled against them. Of course, they don't want to highlight these issues, although the Labor Party, they're not perfect on all of these issues, but they've got a far higher female representation and good quality female MPs and candidates. They've got a far better story to tell about women's issues and women's safety than the coalition does. But I thought that they would have really pushed through with this issue, but they haven't. The Liberal Party has an okay record with Indigenous affairs. Malcolm Fraser was given a 
smoking ceremony at his funeral, a very rare honour. Gough Whitlam was too. The Liberal Party had the first Indigenous member of Parliament in Neville Bonner being appointed to the Queensland Senate. The other thing too is that there was the Liberal Party who set the 1967 referendum which brought Indigenous affairs under the umbrella of the federal government rather than the six individual state governments. Now, I don't want this to come across that the Liberal Party was a bastion of how to deal with Indigenous affairs, but there are some little positives in there. With women, the Liberal Party had the first female junior minister in Dame Enid Lyons, appointed in 1952. They had the first federal cabinet minister with Margaret Guilfoyle as well. And Robert Menzies was always sure to honour the women of the party, knowing that, that that's where the work was done. Menzies knew who did the work in the party. They weren't radical collective feminists by any standard. The record was a little bit better than you might have thought. Then we hit 2007 and things go horribly, horribly wrong. It's probably before then, but Tony Abbott's ascension to the leader of the opposition is probably where it starts to go horribly, horribly wrong. There are quite a few prominent liberal women, Suzanne Lay, Michaelia Cash, Maurice Payne, and a couple of others. But you're absolutely right when you say that Labor is at 49 or 48% representation of women in, in Parliament. That's a pretty good record. I suspect that the Liberal Party will move to that, but it's going to take a change in leadership. I'd have thought that if you've got 51% of the voting public as a problem, you'd work towards fixing that problem, and they haven't done that. And one issue that's really been missing during the election campaign, and it really shouldn't be, is the coronavirus. Labor has been making some references to the failures in the vaccination rollout, highlighting Morrison saying that it wasn't a race when it clearly was. But at the moment, as far as I can tell, this is the worst stage of the pandemic and no one seems to be talking about it. There's currently 65 deaths across Australia every day, 53,000 new infections every day, 3,000 people in hospital, 130 people in ICU. But the pandemic is something that will require further national management and the third dosage rates across Australia are currently at 69%. The two-shot rate is around 95%, so there's obviously still more work that needs to be done here. And at any given time, well, at the moment, there's around 400,000 people who are isolated with COVID illnesses. And this has a rolling effect on the workforce issues and supply chains all across the country. So the pandemic is really far from over, but both sides of politics are behaving as though it's all finished up. It's like this attitude of if we say it's gone, it will go away, which has happened for a lot of policy issues with the the Liberal Party. But the deaths are awful. 420 deaths a week on average. That's uh, 2,000 a month. Economists have started to notice the the difference that it's making to the economy and that there's been no long-term planning put into long COVID and people who may be affected by COVID for the rest of their life. There are people who have left the full-time workforce and who might not be able to get back into it. People who've had to change careers and take a pay cut because they have to work less hours or do a job that they're overqualified for because they're not able to do their job that they are qualified for. The big crime of the pandemic 
was listening to Scott Morrison basically placate those who thought it was all fake, listening to Dominic Perrottet in New South Wales who fought hard against lockdowns and as soon as he became Premier stopped them, and listening to the conspiracy nuts who thought that it was some kind of either Chinese or Bill Gates or something plot to achieve something that wasn't quite clear rather than what it was, a virus. A terrible virus that has killed far more people than it should have. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next, the final opinion polls and who will win the 2022 federal election. There's also a batch of final opinion polls and it's a confusing picture. Some polls haven't moved at all, some have closed in and it's still fluctuating between a two percentage point difference in the two party preferred voting and eight percentage points. And irrespective of that, there's been some slight movement towards the coalition. None of these polls have got the coalition ahead and if the election is based on an opinion polling, it's fluctuating between a hung parliament or an outright Labor victory. At the last election, the Coalition received 51.5% and Labor 48.5% and the Liberal and National parties got over the line by one seat. And this is opposite to what the opinion polls predicted in 2019. There's a lot of reputations on the line in the opinion polling industry and based on the wide range of numbers that are appearing in this final round of polling, someone is going to get it right and a lot of the other polling companies are going to get it wrong. There's a few things happening One, you do get a tightening in the last week of opinion polls. It's mostly from the undecideds. And the other thing too, it's people who say they're undecided, but swing one way or the other anyway. So a person who's always voted liberal, not sure if he's or she's going to this time and in the last week decide, yes, I'm going to stick with what I know. The tightening isn't that much to worry about. The resolve poll, which cut it right back to 51.49. We don't know their methodology. We don't know who they asked. It comes out of Channel 9. It's either been bought in to either bolster the troops of the Liberal Party to say it's not over till six o'clock on Saturday, keep fighting every inch of the way, or it's to distract from polls and get people talking and make people think that they're going to win in the hope of getting some of those undecideds to say, well, they're going to win anyway, I may as well vote for them. If you take the outliers out, there's still been a bit of a tightening, but Labor is still in a fairly commanding position. And that's the interesting thing. You cannot tell anything by one poll, whether that poll is Roy Morgan or News Poll or one of the more credible polls. And I know that some of you are snorting at News Poll, but in fact, it's it's not too bad. It does bias one way, but not hideously. If you take out the less reliable polls, it still looks like a Labor victory at this point. 
Well, this time around, there isn't a unison in the polling numbers. In 2019, the numbers among all of the pollsters were fairly uniform, and it might have been a case where they were just copying each other's homework. But the upshot is that no polling company in 2019 got remotely close to the final election day result, and that's when they were all predicting a comfortable Labor victory, Mm. only for the reverse to occur in the final vote. There's also the betting markets. Now, you do have to treat this with caution. Betting on political outcomes is a boutique market. But on all of their betting, both overall and in the individual seat markets, Labor is also predicted to win. And, And again, this is what they predicted in 2019, didn't turn out to be correct. The same thing is happening in 2022. The opinion polls and the betting markets are all pointing to a Labor victory or a hung parliament, but not a coalition victory. The other consideration is that almost 8 million votes have been lodged through pre-polling and postal votes. And once those votes are cast, nothing can be done during the campaign that can influence those votes. It's too late. They've already been cast. Elections used to be a snapshot of a particular day when almost 95% of votes were lodged on election day. But if you're getting close to 50% of votes being lodged over a two-week period before the actual election day, it makes predicting election outcomes just that little bit more difficult. Last time, I felt it was going to be a very close Liberal victory. But again, it's a manner of looking at seat by seat. It's not a national election. It's 151 local elections. Now, people have a focus on who is going to be prime minister, and that certainly is a part of it. I don't see the same type of traction the coalition got last time, this time. Now, I'm not saying it's not happening. And spoiler alert, I'm not going to make a prediction. I'm going to give five possibilities or four possibilities, any of which could be right, all of which could be wrong. There's a few Labor seats that are looking a bit sort of dodgy. I'm told the seat of Lindsay in uh, Western Sydney is looking like it might go the other way. But when you add in seats like Kuyong and Goldstein and Wentworth, which look like they're going to lose, and and they're Wentworth a bit less so, but still, they're pretty core coalition seats. It does seem to be that the non-outlier polls seem to be right that it's either going to be a Labor government or a minority Labor government. During the election campaign, we've fielded questions from our audience and the questions that we received this time around, they're all pretty much the same and it's not an unreasonable question. Everybody wants to know who is going to win the election. Many political analysts and commentators, they were burnt by opinion polls in 2019, which all predicted a Labor victory and then the exact opposite occurred. I'm not sure if they're suffering from PTSD or embarrassment, but many people have been reticent to make a prediction. and. David, you and I, we are paid small amounts of money to make the big calls, and I'm going to bravely predict who will win the 2022 federal election and why. Now, before I get on to that, one issue that I have noticed is that there's this machismo that exists in the media with the descriptions that they do use in politics. Everything is a bruising encounter, it's a tough tussle, or each political team is looking for a knockout blow. And there was also a football reference during the week as well, saying that Scott Morrison was like the team that was four goals down, five minutes into the final quarter of the grand final, 
kicking into the wind. Now, politics shouldn't be this ridiculous and brutal game. Sure, it's a hard area to work in and it's a tough business, but politics should have a softer edge to it. And and if we're going to use that football analogy, and this is referring to AFL, and that's a game that I used to play and understand, but in the history of AFL, no team has ever been four goals down, five minutes into the grand final, kicking into the wind and gone on to win that game. It's just never happened. And I don't know too much about other sports, but in AFL, this has certainly never happened before. And a political party from this far behind in the political cycle, they've never gone on to win the election. But aside from all the opinion polls or the vibe that's out there, I think we just have to look at the evidence of past performance. This is a corrupt government. This is an inept government. This is a prime minister who lies even when he doesn't need to. He's divisive, possibly racist. He looks to create problems that he can then go on to claim that he's fixed, even if he hasn't. Now, I think that this term of government and the prime ministership of Scott Morrison has been bad for this country. It's been negative rather than positive and based on power without a purpose and just keeping Labor out of office. And that's not a good enough reason to hold on to government. And I realise that Anthony Albanese hasn't been the best leader of the opposition that Labor has ever presented to the public, and we've been critics of Albanese in the past, but this really is a fork in the road. It's crossroads, line in the sand, whatever you want to call it. This is one of the most important federal elections in Australia's history. And I think that Labor does offer a positive outlook for this country. It's a much better outlook than Morrison's division, corruption and incompetence. But it's not so much a case of does Labor deserve to win the election and be in government, but does the coalition deserve to remain in office? And I don't think that they do. And of course, whether the electorate agrees with that sentiment or not, that's something that we'll soon find out. Yeah, it. my approach is slightly, slightly different. We need to get rid of the current government. We can't afford them. We just can't. They've done nothing. They've damaged the country. I don't think irreparably, but it's going to take at least two terms of an alternate government to get things back to where they should be. We've wasted nine years. I want to see a strong, principled Liberal Party with honest members too. I'm sick of flogs being held up as ministers of the Crown, ministers of the Commonwealth. I'm sick of being embarrassed by Richard Colbeck going to the cricket rather than dealing with a crisis. Michael Sukar, hello shady Sukars, acting corruptly. Barnaby Joyce, on and on and on it goes. None of them deserve to be in Parliament, at least none of the ministry, uh, or at least very few of the ministry. I think we need to change government. Now, the options that I see coming, I don't think there'll be a Liberal landslide. I don't think Scott Morrison is popular enough for that. I think we might have a Labor landslide where the Liberal Party much reduced, but we have a very strong crossbench of six or eight or even ten independents. Certainly, if you'd listened to our interviews with the independents, they were all very impressive people who really deserve a shot. And I can endorse all of them because none of them are competing with each other except those in the Senate, and there's plenty of seats in the Senate. So good luck to all of you. I don't see Labor winning comfortably, as in getting a six or eight seat majority. I think it's more likely that they'll either get a landslide or scrape in either with a minority government or with a one or two seat. And that's based on nothing except it's hard to read the situation. I think the situation is because whatever is happening is going to be extreme. 
I don't really see a liberal minority government because most of the independents have stated that they won't work with Morrison. And I suspect that they won't work with Morrison's replacement because whoever that is, is likely going to come from either a discredited ministry or from the backbench and lack experience. Oh, well, I think that there's probably just too many moving parts for a Liberal National Coalition that need to fall into place. And there's also many parts that need to fall into place for Labor to claim victory as well, but not as many as there are for the Coalition. The other consideration is that because of the way that the votes landed in the 2019 election, Labor could win 52.5% of the two-party preferred vote and not win the election. Now, this is unlikely, but it's not implausible. So unless it's another status quo election like the 2019 election or everything that we've analysed over the past three years is completely wrong, and we do have to accept that that might actually be the case, this is an election that Labor should win. My prediction is a narrow Labor outright victory or a Labor-led minority government with the support of independents, but I, I just can't see an outright election victory for the Liberal National Coalition. And, and if this is something that does come to fruition, and I don't want to be too alarmist about this, but you may as well just give the keys to democracy to the Liberal Party and just say, look, it's all yours, you can just do whatever you want with it, because I after all the corruption, all the incompetence and all of the division that we've had over the past nine years. And if Labor still can't get itself into a winning position, well, we might as well all just give up and go home. We're over this democracy caper. Let's just all go home and forget about it. It's not worth pursuing anymore. That's how important I think this particular federal election is. When the government changes, the country changes as well. And I think this is really a time when the government does need to change. I think it might be possible this is my for the Liberal Party to win a one or two seat majority. I don't know how. There are rumblings from a couple of seats. If Labor loses, it's time to fold the party up, which is a brutal thing to say, but another three years of the same is clearly not going to work. The Liberal Party needs to fold up too and restructure and rebuild. I think the almost certainly the one guarantee we have is that Scott Morrison's political career effectively ends on Saturday because unless he can pull off a landslide, his big thing that he's a good campaigner is gone. So that's one prediction I am prepared to make, that even if they win, he won't last as Prime Minister for much longer. So that's the wrap-up of the federal election campaign. David, you and I have really, really enjoyed it. We'll do a wrap-up for the election results in our next episode. So whatever you do, whether it's voting early and voting often, celebrating or commiserating, elections are an important part of the democratic process. So let's see how it all pans out. I don't think many of us will get much sleep between now and Saturday night, but that's okay. Again, good luck to all the people we interviewed. I hope that I'd like to see you all win, actually, and I hope that happens. If you haven't voted already, think very carefully about the future of the country. Vote to your conscience. Don't listen to us. And thank you all for listening, and I look forward to seeing you when it's all done and dusted and we can work out what the damage is or isn't. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. 
I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. <laughs>